Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Rooted Fellowship Digital. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, my name is Oni. I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Rooted Fellowship. Uh, and it's an incredible joy that you have joined us this particular Sunday uh, because it's an important Sunday. Uh, it is Easter Sunday. It is the Sunday that we celebrate our risen King. Now we celebrate him every Sunday. In fact, we celebrate him every day. Uh, but on this particular Sunday, we're slowing things down to really look at the scriptures and unpack uh, those golden nuggets that speak of our Lord and Savior's resurrection and what that means for us. But having said that, uh, today's message is not going to be the typical uh, Easter Sunday message. Uh, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about what he has accomplished on the cross. I'm going to talk about what that means for our lives, but it's going to be slightly different. In fact, I actually went back and looked at all the Easter Sunday messages I've preached, and all of them have been focusing on the fact that he is risen. The verses that I had chosen spoke to the fact that he has risen. But today, what I want to do is take a couple steps back. See, we celebrate the risen king. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the tomb is empty. This is why we make much of Easter Sunday. The tomb is empty. He is risen. But today, today, like I said, I'd like to take a couple steps back. I would like us to look at the cross. Something that we would look at on Good Friday, and, and, and Good Friday's message uh, took a, t a couple steps back as well. Um, and, and so I want us to look at the cross to examine its significance because it too carries great weight and importance for our salvation. There can be no resurrection without the cross. So what about the cross? Well, let's do some historical cultural work. Through the scriptures, right, we're going to do some historical cultural work, and trust me, it's going to pay off, right? So sit back, relax, let's jump in. So you see, according to the Jews, Jesus was being punished for committing blasphemy. That's why he ended up on the cross, they said that he had committed blasphemy for claiming that he is the Son of God. And this was considered a capital offense. And according to Jewish law, for most capital offenses, being stoned until dead was the form of punishment. And on some occasions, the dead body would be hung in public as a warning to others who wanted to venture into criminal activities. That's why they did that. The Apostle Paul refers to this old Jewish law in relationship to Jesus and his death on the cross. He does so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is where Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was cursed for us, hanging on the cross as a substitute for our sins. The law in the Old Testament writings was a foreshadowing, a trailer attraction of the redemption of humanity. Now, without even knowing it, these Jewish people were actually fulfilling what had been promised. 
Here's another interesting historical cultural truth anchored in the scriptures. The cross of Christ was sometimes referred to in Jewish context as a tree or the tree. Let me show you. Acts chapter 5 verse 13. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus whom you have murdered by hanging him on a tree. Acts chapter 10, verse 39, it says, We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. Acts chapter 13, verse 29, When they had carried out all that, they, all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But let's go back to Galatians, where Paul speaks of the tree, but also, I want us to take notice here, but also mentions a curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, the concept of cursing and blessing in association uh, with a tree can be found in the larger narrative of Scripture. Let's go all the way to the beginning. In Genesis 3, Eve and then Adam eat fruit from a tree from which they were forbidden to eat. Let's look at it closely. Remember, I want us to always remember, we are looking for things that will help us get clarity on the tree, the curse, a blessing, and the cross. The tree, the curse, a blessing, and the cross. While not forgetting that Jesus is alive, he is risen no longer on the cross and no longer in the tomb. He is risen, but we're taking a couple steps back just so that we can appreciate it. So Genesis, let's start in Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, verse one. It says, in the beginning, God created. Can, can I say this, that in all honesty, it actually shouldn't matter what comes after that. Like, let's be real for a moment. In the beginning, God created. There's a, a saying out there, it goes like this. He who creates dictates. Which simply means that, that the creator is allowed to say to the creation, anything, how the creation should function, what the creation should do. In the beginning, God created. If we truly believed this, it would move us, I believe, it would move us from trusting in a God of revelation instead of a God of our imagination. In trusting in a God of biblical interpretation instead of a God of personal figmentation. Let me, let me ask it this way. How would your life look? I'm, wait, I'm assuming too much. 
let's take a step back. How different would your life look if you truly believed that in the beginning God created? How different? How different would your life look? How different would your marriage look? How different would your relationships look? How different would your finances look? How different would your ambitions look, your desires, your goals, what you do with your time, how you rest? How, how different would that look if you believed that he who creates dictates and then on top of that believe that God is good, that he is faithful? I wish I could say more, but that's not the sermon today. God created everything including trees. And in Genesis, we're told of two specific trees. Among all the trees in the Garden of Eden, God identified two special trees, a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2 verse 9 says, The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God allowed Adam and Eve to eat from all the trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, warning them that death would result from that disobedience. We see this in Genesis chapter 2 from verses 15 to 17. But let me uh, read verse 17. He says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. God couldn't be more clear. Not maybe you'll die. It's touch and go. It depends how much you ate. God, I, I wasn't that disobedient. I mean, God, it wasn't that big of a sin. If you disobey, you will certainly die. That's what God says to Adam and Eve. After being tempted by the serpent, Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And guys, don't be excused. We're told that Adam did the same thing. He was standing right there. Genesis 3, verses 6 to 7. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. I mean, at some point you'd think Adam would go, hold on. God said something about this tree. I don't know who this serpent is who's coming in between our marriage. So they both eat. And at that moment, verse 7 says, their eyes were opened. And they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig trees, fig leaves together to cover themselves. See, after eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in part to become wise, let's not miss that. That's, that's why the text tells us she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So, so after eating of 
the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, in part to become wise. Adam and Eve now possess the knowledge of good and evil like God does. As well as the knowledge of their nakedness. Genesis 3, verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. Now let's pause here for a moment, and let's be honest. I I love to say that we should ferociously ask the text questions. That we should be known as a people who are constantly coming to God's word and going, what does this mean? So let's pause for a moment and ask the question, why is us knowing both good and evil here considered a bad thing? Can, Can we be honest? I would think that us knowing good and evil would be beneficial for us. It would be beneficial for our everyday lives. But clearly, God doesn't think so. Why? I'm glad you asked. Here is what I believe is going on here with regards to knowing good and evil and why, according to God, us having acquired this knowledge this way is bad news for us. You see, upon deeper study, knowing good and evil means making judgments. It means making judgments. See, the first thing to say is that knowing good and evil does not refer to the possession of information. Like one would know the capital of Ethiopia. Just by way of interest, who knows what the capital of Ethiopia is? Not everyone at the same time. Wow. Wow. We will not talk about that. It, it, it's, it doesn't refer to the, the, the possession of information like knowing the chemical formula for air. I'm not even going to ask if you guys know what that is. You see, knowing good and evil is an active expression. And it refers to discernment between good and evil. And so therefore, it's, it's referring to making judgments. For example, if we're to look at the wise words of a wise woman from an area called Tekoa, this unnamed woman speaks to King David when she was looking for him to correct a wrong. 2 Samuel chapter 14, from verse 16, it says, For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, here's the woman making this plea to the king, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. See, the woman is requesting for the king to give a judgment. She associates this knowledge to the activity of God himself or the angel of God. It is the kind of judgment that is associated with rulership. This is similar to when Solomon became king at David's death. He prays for wisdom. But let's listen to the actual words. 1 Kings chapter 3, 
from verse 7, it says, Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So knowing good and evil means making judgments. Also, I believe that knowing good and evil represents moral maturity. You see, Solomon's request comes alongside his confession that he is like a little child. In verse 7, he says, yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. And this points us to the second aspect of the knowledge of good and evil. It is associated with maturity. The type of maturity that is required to be in a position of delivering moral judgments. And so to lack it is to be immature. It is to be like a child. To lack this knowledge is not morally blameworthy. It's not. Not in an immature child. It's almost expected. It's simply natural. Yet, at the same time, for those who should be further along in wisdom, knowledge of good and evil, this knowledge and practice of it, it's expected. It's expected for those who should be further along. I mean, listen to the author of the book of Hebrews as he rebukes his readers. Don't miss it. This is a rebuke. Hebrews chapter 5, from verse 12, he says, Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principle of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Can you hear the rebuke? He's like, that, that's actually where you should be. You're not ready for this. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So the knowing of good and evil in this context, and according to God, is making judgments, so discernment, making judgments and moral maturity. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for Adam and Eve represented the choice between submitting to God's law or pursuing moral autonomy. What I'm saying, I know, is not foreign to us. This is the wrestle. This is the everyday wrestle. Will I submit to God or do I want to be in charge? Will I lay it all before God, or do I want to be the master of my own destiny? See, I believe God had a different path for us. Learning obedience would result in greater wisdom, in greater maturity that leads to greater freedom. This is what we gave up. We became foolish, immature, and slaves to sin. 
Learning obedience would result in greater wisdom, maturity, and freedom. This is what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with. We should look closely, Genesis 3.5. Serpent says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, sin comes to us and, and says, no, 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 God doesn't actually want what's good for you. He doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care about you. I mean, look, look at your life. Nothing is going according to plan. It's because God is not fully in control. That is why you must take control. That's why you must be in charge. That's why when you read the first verse of the Bible, you should read it as in the beginning, insert your name, create it. This is how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve. It's to say that you shall judge for yourselves, which is true. By eating of the fruit, it opened the eyes and, and, and it just it made us realize that, oh wow, we, we can do this. We can judge for ourselves. But Satan left out the rest. Yes, you shall be able to judge for yourselves, but with the minds of children with immaturity. See, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with the rights of autonomy by telling us that we don't need to submit to God. That submitting to God does not lead to flourishing. We were sold lies by the father of lies, telling us that we can't trust God and that we don't need him. Friends, Satan's tactics have not changed over the generations. He does the same thing with Jesus in the desert. If, if you are the son of God, wants to create doubt, we're told that we cannot trust God and that we don't need him. See, it's important for us to understand that flourishing is possible. It is possible. I know you might be looking at your life and going, well, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't seem that way, but it is possible. Flourishing is possible and achievable with obedience to God. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Faith produces faithfulness, which produces fruit. It's always been like that. It's possible to achieve flourishing without the consequences of sin. And, and there lies the tragedy. Adam and Eve were indeed destined to rule creation, to flourish, to exist in this beautiful shalom. But this was to be achieved in the same way that Jesus achieved what he did, by submission to God. Look with me, Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, well-known um, verses, speaking of Jesus, that he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross, remember, on a tree. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names. 
you continue to read the text, it's just beautiful. It unfolds this blessing that was bestowed upon Jesus because he chose obedience and submission to the Father. And so, because of this great sin that was committed by our first parents, Adam and Eve, this disobedience that has made its way through humanity, this disobedience that is still being practiced today, God prohibited Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life in case they live forever in that state. And so therefore God guards the tree. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Let me read it to you. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. See, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden must have had some role of maintaining life for Adam and Eve and creation. Adam and Eve would live forever. But because of this sin, had they eaten of, from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their fallen and broken condition. If they had eaten the tree of life after committing this sin of disobedience, the rest of their life would have been an absolute misery. So then God placed a flame-swording wielding angel at the entrance of the garden specifically to guard the way to the tree of life. It seems, to access, it seems access to the tree of life would have prolonged Adam and Eve's physical lives indefinitely, dooming them and all that would come from them to an eternity in a cursed world, in a cursed state. And so it was an act of mercy it was an act of mercy that God kept us from the tree of life. Think about it for a moment. How, 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 how could a loving God say, you know what, okay, let me, let me just let them live this way and do so forever. It was an act of mercy. By prohibiting access to the tree of life, God showed compassion in his infinite wisdom knowing that because of sin, earthly life would be filled with sorrow and strife, God graciously limited the number of years humans would live. Knowing that earthly life would be filled with sorrow and strife, with misery and pain, with brokenness. Hashtag, it would be hell. And so God, in his grace, in his mercy, gives us enough time to come to know him and his provision for eternal life through Christ and spares us the misery of endless and endless existence in a sinful condition. In his great love, God provided one who would redeem fallen and broken humanity. Paul captures this in Romans chapter 5, verse 17 to 19. He says, for the 
The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, who? Jesus Christ. He is risen. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God all the way to the cross, obeyed God all the way to the cross, many will be made righteous. And so let's fast forward to the end of the story. The greatest story ever told, the Bible. The story of a king who rescues his people and takes them to a place where they will enjoy him and his promises forever, where they will experience endless blessing. Let's go to that place, Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. It speaks of the eternal state of those who put their trust in Jesus. It speaks of those who will eat from the tree of life. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. This is where we find the gospel. This is good news. Here is the reason we celebrate Easter. It's because of this promise. This promise that says all those who submit themselves to Jesus and receive the gift of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross will be resurrected just as he was to see the tree of life again. For it stands in the middle of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, where it bears 12 crops of fruit, producing its fruit every month without fail. What a blessing. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In this paradise, which we call heaven, the curse will be no more. And neither, neither will its implications. Access to the tree of life will be restored and darkness will be banished forever for all those who are in Christ. What a blessing the kingdom of God will be fully restored. He is risen. And so let me, let me read you this passage. Like I said, there's something beautiful about the public reading of God's word. Listen to this passage and let it warm your hearts just as it warmed mine over this last week. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. It says, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will they be a curse upon anything. 
For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, this Easter, I want you to know that a tree was involved in the entry of sin into humanity. And the answer to sin for humanity is yet another tree, the cross. It's at the cross that we see the ultimate removal of sin in eternity. And so maybe picture it this way, that at creation you have these two trees, the tree of life and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. And yet humanity does, disobeying God and opening the door to sin. And then there's the promise of another tree. It stands in the center, in the middle of the holy city, the tree of life. And so the question is how, how, how do we get there? Well, in the middle, we find Jesus on a tree. Arms stretch wide. It is like he is reaching from the one end, grabbing the tree of life and reaching to the other side and grabbing the other tree of life and then saying to humanity, for all those who will submit, who will come under my care, under these arms, you will find life. You will find blessing in this life and in the life to come. And so let me close by reading a short piece from a book that I read over the sabbatical, my sabbatical, an incredible book that has literally changed the way that I look at the scriptures. I want to read a portion that speaks of the cross, that speaks of what we've just unpacked, that allows us to celebrate Easter in the way that it is meant to be celebrated. And so this piece goes like this. He starts by asking the question, so what are we going to do with this blood-soaked king? Will we accept him or turn from him? Will we seek to construct our own kingdom or will we submit to his upside-down kingdom? Luke represents this option to us through the two thieves on the cross. Jesus was not the only one crucified the day the sun went dark. There were two other convicts who were ingloriously pinned up alongside Jesus. For Luke, these are not only historical figures, but literally, liter literary figures who represent the choices of all mankind. Will they recognize the Messiah through the cross? Or will the blood be a hindrance to their sight? One sees, the other is blinded. The cross is the key to this decision. While the three were heaving for their last fleeting breaths, one of them called out to Jesus, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He seemed to view the Messiah as a savior of the people, a standard view of the day. 
but the Jesus he saw seemed like no king. Only a savior, but not a king. For how could the Messiah be on the cross? The cross was a stumbling block for seeing Jesus as king. But the other thief asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. How could this thief have viewed a bloodied, beaten, and crucified criminal as the kingdom ruler? Maybe he was confused or delirious. Or maybe he suddenly had insight into the relationship between the kingdom and a crucified Messiah. In a moment, for this thief, the relationship between the crucified Messiah and kingdom was revealed. The cross is not contrary to this king and kingdom, but the center of it. This king has power, but it is a paradoxical power. One of suffering and weakness. Somehow this outcast recognized that despite what he was seeing, this Messiah will come again in power and the kingdom will be consummated. This king also came to save a people. People like the thief beside him. But if the people reject him, they have no place in the kingdom. The kingdom is about the king's people, but they must accept and trust the king on the cross. The cross is the entrance for people to either enter the kingdom or be thrown out forever. The narrative also reveals that the cross is the entrance to the kingdom place. When the thief asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, Jesus answered by telling him about a place. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, today, today you will experience blessing. This is why I say over and over again, the most important moment of your life is now, today. Luke at this pivotal moment joins together the king, paradise, and a decision at the cross. He naturally puts on the cross a conversation about the who, the what, and the where of the kingdom. Because the cross is the center of this kingdom plan. The kingdom cannot be understood without the cross, nor the cross without the kingdom. The day the new creation began was the day Jesus died. He was strung up as a common criminal on a Roman cross, and history has not been able to ignore what was a regular spectacle on that day. This is because Christians quickly began to interpret his death as the center of their faith. This was no common death, but a substitution for the sins of the world. Kingdom and cross go together. Jesus' main message was the kingdom, and his main mission was to go to Golgotha. Kingdom and cross must mutually interpret each other. They must be kept in the same orbit. The fact that the kingdom is redefined by the cross doesn't mean that it isn't still the kingdom. The fact that the cross is the kingdom bringing event doesn't mean that it isn't still an act of horrible and brutal injustice on one hand and powerful rescuing divine love on the other. The two meanings are brought into dramatic and shocking but permanent relation. This is why we cry out, he is risen. The king, 
He is risen indeed. And so let me close with this verse. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. How, how, how should one respond? It says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will take a hold of your heart. That this Easter Sunday, you would stand before the risen King, who right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, having defeated sin, death, and Satan, having secured for us eternal blessing, allowing us to continually eat from the tree of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen. And so for those who have crossed the line of faith, for those who are already Christians, for those who are the children of God, my question maybe to you today would be, have you strayed from this king? Have you found yourself believing the lies of Satan? Giving half-truths? Do you find your life lacking the joy that is found in Jesus? This Easter Sunday is an opportunity for you to renounce those idols in your life and to turn to Jesus yet again and to say, you are the risen King. To recognize what was accomplished for you on the cross. But maybe for you today, something is happening in your heart where you're going, this is new, this sounds fresh, this sounds different. This is an opportunity for you today, the most important moment of your life, to turn away from all these things that you are pursuing, hoping to find life and meaning and joy. They come up empty every single time. We are like drug addicts roaming the world looking for the next fix. Today is an opportunity for you to look to the cross and to recognize what Jesus has done on it. To realize that the tomb is empty. That death could not defeat him. To know that right now Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And when he prays, he prays for you by name. By circumstance. By situation. He knows your failures. He knows your imperfections. And yet still, he set his eyes on the cross. You are loved more than you could ever imagine. And the cross is the evidence of that. And so today, would you surrender your life? Would you lay it all down? We would love to come alongside you. If you have made this decision today, we would love to come alongside you and walk this journey with you. We have been beautifully designed for fellowship because in the community of God, we constantly tell one another, remember, 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 he is risen. And so would you take that step today? And so, Father, we come to you asking that as we have walked through these scriptures, literally from Genesis to Revelation, we see that all of them point to you, Jesus. They speak of who you are, Lord and Savior. That we don't get to pick which one we want. That when we come to you, we come to you as our Lord and Savior.
Father, I pray that you would soften all our hearts. Would you give us ears so that we might hear? Would you open up our minds so that we might understand? Would we open up our hearts so that we might receive the greatest gift that's ever been given? And may we with all of creation cry out, He is risen. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. Um, this is a great opportunity for us to respond by coming to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a place of fellowship. It's a place where, uh, where the broken come to be healed. It's a place for those who feel shattered come to be restored. Those who have disease come to be healed. It's a place where we remember what Jesus has accomplished. And so I would like us to partake of communion. These are simple elements we've sanitized, as you've just witnessed Jonah doing so. All protocols have been adhered to. But we somewhat chuckle at that because we also recognize that these are just simple elements. These are things that you can find anywhere. Many of us have them in our homes. It's wine, it's grape juice, bread or crackers. We, we have these things in our, in our very homes. They're simple. And so it's not necessarily these elements, but it's what these elements point to. This is what changes lives. This is why Jesus says to us, do this as often as you can in remembrance of me, because we are forgetful people. It's because we are bombarded with the father of lies every waking moment. But when we look at these elements, we're reminded that we have been forgiven. That we are loved, that we are cared for, that our Father hears us when we cry out to Him. And so I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. I'll read it to us, and then I'll say a short prayer. And then I'm going to ask that as you feel led and comfortable to do so, that you would just come up to this table in your own time, grab these simple elements, Go back to where you're sitting and just spend some time with Jesus. Spend some time with Jesus. And maybe before you partake of this, maybe just ask, Jesus, what are the things in my life that are keeping me from you? I said this two weeks ago, and I'll say it again, that so many of us, we find ourselves in these entanglements. Maybe a better word would be these strongholds that keep us from enjoying Jesus in his fullness. And so we need to know that behind every stronghold is a lie. Behind every lie is a fear. Behind every fear is an idol that we have created, hoping that it will give us that that which only Jesus can give us. And so maybe today is an opportunity for you to call out that idol. 
call it out. If it's control, if it's money, the pursuit of success, being accepted, your ambitions, your marriage, your children, your failures. That we can find ourselves closed in our failures to the point where we believe that they can provide for us, that they can protect us. We need to call those out. For what they are, they're idols. Ask for Jesus to destroy them. That's what he does. Jesus destroys idols. He has no time for them. Call out your fears. Recognize the lie that's been told to you by the Father of Lies. And let him release you from that stronghold, from that bondage. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father God, we come asking that as we partake of these simple elements, that something would happen in our hearts, restoration, reconciliation, that we would be sanctified, which simply means to be set apart, that we are being molded and shaped to become more and more like you, Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, help us. Help us. That in us, in each and every one of us, as the children of God, we possess supernatural power. Not our own power, but your power. That allows us to renounce, to repent, so that we can receive. And so do that in our lives, Lord Jesus. We are your children. You are our Father. We are your people. You are our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's partake together.